Well, you're probably familiar with the tale of the emperor's new clothes. And in the emperor's new clothes, there's a king, a vain king, who is visited by these two out-of-town swindlers who convince him they can make the most amazing, wonderful set of clothes for him. But the catch is those clothes will be invisible to anybody who's not wise, who's not truly wise. And so as you follow the story, the king's servants and then ultimately the king, they all see that this is a ruse, that there are no clothes, that it's fake, that they're invis- there's nothing there. But no one wants to say it because they don't want to be thought to be unwise. And so everyone goes along with it until they're in this grand parade where everyone's watching the, the king go by in his new clothes. And even the citizens are like, yay, until a child who doesn't know any better, says, he's not wearing any clothes. Which everybody's like, oh my gosh, he's not wearing any clothes. And all of a sudden, the king is uh, the buffoon in the story, right? Everyone's joining in. Now, it's, it's a tale about how we can all go along with a lie if no one's willing to tell the truth. But I actually want you to see what Scottish philosopher Alastair McIntyre once said about this story. He said, to cry out that the emperor had no clothes on was at least to pick on one man only to the amusement of everyone else. To declare that almost everyone is dressed in rags is much less likely to be popular. What he's saying is that we love to point out the faults in others. It's easy for us to see the flaws in others. Is it easy for us to see it in ourselves? Do we ever take time to reflect on the lack in our own lives? And and what would it look like to not go through life only seeing the faults in others, but being able to see our own issues and being able to ask Jesus to be the one that steps into it in this sermon series Uh, called Stronger, we're looking at how we can depend upon Jesus to be our strength going through the things of the world. This morning, we want to see how Jesus is stronger than even the self-deception that we can tend to live in. And the thing that I want you to walk away from this morning realizing is that when we see Jesus for who he truly is, we see ourselves for who we truly are. You see, when we live in self-deception, it doesn't just mean that we live with lies about ourselves. It also also inhibits our ability to live into the possibilities and the promises of a life that God would desire for us. It impacts the way that we live in the world, the way we live with others, that when we live with self-deception, it impacts the calling God wants for our lives and even what he wants for our church. And so we're going to look at a text in Mark chapter 2, in Mark chapter 2, where we'll see that how we see Jesus is deeply connected to how we see ourselves and how we see what God wants for us. So we're in Mark chapter 2. If you have one of these journal Bibles, would encourage you to follow along if you are at home and you have a journal Bible, another Bible, a Bible on a phone. would just love for you to be able to mark some stuff down, to take some notes. Uh, we're going to read our text together starting in verse 13. So Mark 2, 13. He, being Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. 
And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Verse 15, and as he, Jesus, reclined at table in his, Levi's house, Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Verse 17, and when Jesus heard it, He said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So we'll stop right there. Last week, uh, Emily talked about the text as a sandwich, that it had bread and then some meat and then some bread at the bottom. Well, if our text today was a sandwich, it would be more like bread and then just meat. So it would be like an upside down open face sandwich, which is not a great metaphor. So let's just say this story is more like a story or a joke. It's like a, there's a setup and then there's a punchline. So there's two parts to the text. I want you to draw a line in between verses 14 and 15. So draw a line between verses 14 and 15 in the text, and that separates the setup and the punchline for this episode. So the first part is just the setup. And in the setup, we see Jesus doing the very unexpected. He comes up to a man named Levi who's sitting at a tax booth, and he invites him to follow him. Now, beside the word Levi, I want you to write the word Matthew, because he's more commonly known as the, in the Gospels and in history as Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples, and I'll probably refer to him as Matthew from here on out. But this is a very loaded moment. He invites Matthew to follow him, and Matthew, I'm sure, knows who Jesus is at this point. But Matthew, I'm also sure, was shocked that Jesus said, follow me. Matthew would have had one of those, like, wait, me? Are you you talking to me, Jesus? Like, this would have been the most, I mean, most surprising ask that Jesus could have possibly made. It's, It's not unlike if you're on the kickball field at school and there's the team captains and the first one goes and picks the most unlikely player First, you're supposed to pick the players that everyone knew, but, they, but if they picked the completely, the last person they would ever pick, this is what's happening in this story. It's a bewildering choice for Jesus. I'll explain more in a second as to why, but what I want you to see about the setup is that Jesus' invitation includes the most unlikely characters. That's the setup. Now, the second part is what we would call the punchline. So somewhere out beside the phrase, the scribes of the Pharisees, I want you to write experts on Jewish law. Experts on Jewish law. So these people were like the gatekeepers of what it meant to have a good, faithful, law-practicing relationship with God as an Israelite. 
They were experts on how to live out your faith based on the Old Testament law. And so these experts on the law, they show up and Jesus is having a dinner party at a tax collector's house with what we're told as a bunch of tax collectors and sinners. Three things I want you to note about this text. You don't have to write these down, uh, but I'll hit them really quick. What I was hinting at earlier when I said that tax collectors were, would be unsurprising for Jesus to ask to follow him is because tax collectors were considered outsiders. They were considered sinners. They were considered villains because tax collectors worked for the Roman government to tax their own people. And that almost assuredly meant they were cheating their own people. And so good, faithful Jewish people would never be caught socializing with tax collectors. The second thing is Pharisee literally meant separatists, meaning that they thought the way to be a good, faithful Jew was to separate themselves from anybody who was not a good, faithful, practicing Jew like a tax collector. The third thing is that in their culture, to share a meal at someone's house, like, like Jesus is doing, is intimate and honorary. To eat at someone's house is to say, I approve of this person. And so Jesus has stepped into a scandalous and combustible moment. And that's immediately clear because the scribes, the religious experts, the gatekeepers say, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus is getting into what we might call good trouble. A phrase made famous by the late civil rights icon John Lewis, who marched with Dr. King. And good trouble is when you step into situations that others frown upon and have written off so that you might affirm the possibilities in the lives of others who are frowned upon and written off. So not only does Jesus have the nerve to sit down and eat with tax collectors and sinners, he has the nerve to actually believe that God loves them and that God is for them and that God sees possibilities and meaning in their lives that no one else can see. He doesn't leave them where they are. He invites them to follow him. And this is the moment where the self-deception of the scribes, of the Pharisees, comes to the surface. Because Jesus doesn't do what they want him to do. He doesn't say what they want him to say. He doesn't act like they want him to act. He doesn't think like they want him to think. And therefore, he cannot possibly be the one for them. He cannot possibly be the one to be strong for them. He cannot possibly be the Savior of Israel and the world. He's not the one they're looking for. Because when they saw Jesus... They saw him through the lens of their own self-deception. And he was in incompatible with everything they knew. And therefore, they didn't follow him. They dismissed him. And they discredited him. So don't miss this. They couldn't see Jesus for who he was because they were not looking for a savior they were looking for affirmation. 
They could not see Jesus for who he was because they were not looking for a savior. They were looking for affirmation that they had already made it, that they were already right, that they had figured life out. And because they could not see Jesus for anything other than whether or not he supported their agenda, they couldn't see him for who he truly was, and therefore they continued to see themselves incorrectly. And the punchline is that those who seemed most likely to get the invite were actually left out because they had placed their security in some other way, that they had placed their security in the wrong thing. And because I think it'll be helpful, I want to quickly name a few of the ways that we see self-deception playing out in this text and how it relates to our own journey with Jesus and and how that self-deception affects how we see ourselves but also potentially how we treat others as well. And so I'm going to give you some phrases I want you to write down in the margins or on the, on the open page of your Bible to, to remind you of how self-deception is working in this text. Uh, and then to offer you an alternative vision of what strength in Jesus might look like. So I want you to write the words ministers greater than minders. Ministers greater than minders. See, in our self-deception, it's possible that we believe, like the scribes, that what God wants of us, for us, is to be minders of an institution, to be defenders of the status quo, to be defenders of our way of life, rather than ministers to those whom God loves. And I, I'll confess, I am tempted by this every day, every week, to place a priority on programs and polish, and process over people. But Jesus has not called us to be minders of an institution, but to be ministers of the gospel, of the good news to others. The second thing I want you to write down, beloved is greater than beleaguered. Beloved is greater than beleaguered. In our self-deception, we might become beleaguered achievers, who can't fathom that those who have not earned it like we've earned it can receive the grace of God. Achievers who know that we've done all the right things and look all the right ways and can't imagine how God might see us as his beloved children, not based on what we've done, but based on who he is. And so we are called in the strength of Jesus to see ourselves not as beleaguered achievers, but as beloved of God. And, and again, I can identify with this. If you're familiar with the Enneagram, I'm a three. And if you're not familiar, familiar with it, that means I'm the kind of person that likes to make to-do lists so I can cross off the to-do list. I like to get stuff done. I like to achieve. I like to feel successful. We are not called to prove to God how successful we are or how good we are. We are called to know that we are beloved of him because that's his character. The third thing is I want you to write family is greater than fighters. Family is greater than fighters. In our self-deception, we might be tempted to believe that what God wants for us is to defeat, to conquer, 
to be combatant with those who disagree with us. I don't know if you feel that way ever when someone disagrees with me. My temptation is immediately to prove to them that I'm right. Maybe my temptation should be to pray for them, to love them, to see them as family, as brothers and sisters, beloved by God, even if we disagree. And so what it would look like to let Jesus pull us out of our self-deception is not to be fighters and try to own everybody who we disagree with, but instead to love them because they are brothers and sisters made in the image of God. You see, when we live in self-deception, it doesn't just affect us. It affects the way we live in the world. It affects the way we treat others. It affects the way we live out our calling to be the people of God in the world. The setup in this story is that Jesus' invitation is for everyone, even the most unlikely. And the punchline is that you'll miss the invitation and you'll miss God's calling if you're so worried about who else got the invite or worried about proving that you already earned it. One of the things we do as a team on Mondays is uh, our pastors and our worship staff and several others uh, join together and we look at the sermon text for the upcoming week, two weeks out. And we just spend half an hour kicking around the text, talking about ideas. And uh, one thing that Patty Kratzer, who is up in the booth right now running slides for us, Patty Kratzer said something two weeks ago that I just could not help but add to this sermon. She said, our self-deception is ultimately when we think we don't need Jesus. Our self-deception is ultimately when we think we don't need Jesus. This text compares our sin to a sickness. And last week, uh, Pastor Emily talked about how sin and sickness are things that we cannot cure ourselves of. The sick, Jesus says, know they need a doctor. They know that something isn't working. They know that they need help. And they are ready to not settle for anything less than what's possible for their lives. The good news for all of us is that Jesus is stronger than our self-deception. This isn't about making ourselves stronger. It's about letting the crucified Christ, who says, follow me, overcome our self-deception and unite us with God's calling on our lives. When we see Jesus for who he truly is, we see ourselves for who we truly are. But when our lives are consumed by lies about who we are, self-deception. We miss, we miss what God has for us. Jesus sees better possibilities for your life and for mine. He sees better possibilities for our church. He wants to move us beyond our self-deception to see him for who he truly is, that we might see ourselves for who we truly are. In the 17th century, Oliver Cromwell was the ruler of England, and England faced a crisis. They ran out of silver, and they could no longer mint coins. And so Oliver Cromwell sent his soldiers across the country, find me any silver you can possibly find. 
And they looked and looked and they came back and they said, there's only one place in the country where there's extra silver. In the churches, in the statues of the saints. To which Oliver Cromwell replied, well then melt down the saints and get them back into circulation. Ah. Beautiful silver statues posting up in a beautiful location. And it makes me wonder how much we do the right things, luck the right ways, but our self-deception is keeping us frozen. And how much do we need to be melted down and have our self-deception pulled back that God might get us back into circulation? that he might use us for what he desires to use us for in the world. And that's my hope and prayer for you. It's my hope and prayer for us, that we see past the self-deception and we see Jesus, and he reminds us that we were made for more, that we were made to live out our salvation every day, everywhere that we are, that we are meant to be the people of God in circulation in the world calling the world to see what's possible because of what God is doing in our lives. So we wanted to give you some time to reflect on that this morning, to reflect on what it would look like to confess the way self-deception has been blinding us and to ask Jesus where we need him to show us what he truly wants for our lives, what calling that we might be missing. And so uh, there's going to be a question on the screen to lead you in self-reflection. Ben's going to sing for us. would encourage you to sit, to confess, to reflect, to pray, to seek the Lord over what he might be desiring for, for you and for us.